you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. everyone, Future Zoe here. Just a heads up for this episode, we are so excited to introduce our first guest to the podcast, which is fantastic. And since we had a guest this episode, it ended up being pretty long, so we've split it up into several parts. But don't worry, they're going to be named in consecutive episodes, so stay tuned. We're not going to do all of our regular segments this episode, but they will be in our upcoming episode. So March is for our guest, and March is for this particular text. So we hope you really like it. So without any further ado, enjoy! never tried to do a three-person thing before. That's true. That's true. You're our first guest, Mary. I'm so excited. <laughs> ah, I'm excited to be here. We're excited right. to have you here. Yes. So give us some background on who you are, what you do, and what, mm. I guess, experience you have with medievalism, if any, at wow. all. Wow. Well, look. <laughs> it is... A brief experience. So I, so my name is Mary. I recently got my PhD in children's literature. Congratulations! And I kind of focus on children's literature and body image. I talk a lot about weight and disability, and I'm not using that at all. I am writing about video games for a living now. <laughs> a good Which, gig. That is a gig that I would love to have. So honestly, to you. I love it. I just get to log in and for eight hours talk about what's happening in the world of video games. And then I get to log out and not have to think about it anymore. Um, so that's what I'm doing now. But... I also am on a podcast called Book Squad Goals with three other lovely ladies, and we talk about books and pop culture. We love to, I don't want to say make fun of stuff, that sounds mean. We like to interrogate text <laughs> and have fun with it. Like, it's it's a book club. It's just kind of like our our little book club. And as far as medieval literature goes, I did take a seminar that counts. in undergrad on Arthurian literature, which is kind of not <laughs> I mean, the most same of it's thing. medieval, I think. A lot of it is medieval. And, yeah, and we, and you know, we did a lot of the medieval stuff. We did a lot of early stuff, and then we were just kind of like, oh yeah, and the Once and Future King is also a thing that exists. Right. So we spent most, our professor was a classics professor, so she didn't really care about contemporary adaptations. No, no, why would you? You know, it was a fun class. <laughs> Other than that, I don't know. I, you know, every year my husband teaches Chaucer to high school students and I say, I don't like that guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's, he's Which very adept at, at making fun of the current culture in Middle English. Truly. So there's, there's a bit of connection there. I do have to ask why specifically you dislike Chaucer. Oh, gosh. I mean, you know, like, bad, bad teachers, mostly. Oh, you know, truth. like, having professors or high school teachers kind of just put it in front of us and say, here's Chaucer. Don't you guys get it? Yeah? Okay, bye. You know, like, that's not... Especially when students are coming out of text with, like, no experience 
in the historical context, that's not enough. So, I mean, honestly, I think, I mean, I kind of love, like, a lot of the stories out of medieval times, but kind of in a redone contemporary context. I mean, I love fantasy, like... You don't say. Fantasy lit. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is people, you know, trying to adapt. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, Tolkien is the OG of this. I mean, he's taking Gothic texts and literally just changing the names and sticking them in his work so you, you know what though i don't like i don't like talking that's valid too okay so <laughs> i have to ask what is your favorite recommended fantasy work oh gosh i don't know that's not a fun answer but i truly don't know okay. i'm currently working through the wheel of time i just i'm on the second book of that one actually it is i don't want to say it's the best it's got a lot of problems it does have a lot of problems <laughs> Uh, weird sexism and like gender essentialism, a lot of that going on. My main issue with it is that I felt like the plot didn't start until book two. Yes. Robert Jordan likes to do this thing where he's like, here's a horse. I'm going to spend 20 pages describing this horse, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. talking about what the horse can do. Everyone's going to look at the horse. Mm -hmm. And then maybe like 300 pages into the novel, something will happen. Yes. Pretty much. Still better than Name of the Wind, in my opinion. But that's a rant for another time. So having not read The Wheel of Time, isn't he the one who like spent so much time dawdling over details he ended up dying before he finished the series? <gasps> well, no. It's he did die. Robert Jordan did die before he finished the series, but he he didn't dawdle over it. It's not like he was old. He was actually like in his early 50s, I think, when he died, oh. he had a brief, really aggressive illness. Oh, geez, that's a pity. And then died. So it wasn't like a George R. R. Martin situation I was gonna where say. he's just like, I'm going to finish that book one day. <laughs> now, now that he's. That's the context in which I always hear Robert Jordan mentioned is like, George R. R. Martin needs to hurry up because, like, look what happened to Robert Jordan. Because you never. Oh, no. I mean, Robert Jordan didn't anticipate dying, I think. It's not that he was old. He just, like, got really sick. And, I mean, it was. I didn't know anything about Robert Jordan at the time, but apparently it was like a very tragic thing in the fantasy community. And then Brandon Sanderson stepped up (laughs) and just kind of, and Brandon Sanderson, this, this is not what we're here to talk about at all, but I love this story. Brandon Sanderson stepped in and said, okay, here are all of Robert Jordan's notes for the last book in this series. Oh no, it's too many notes. (laughs) (laughs) This needs to be, several books actually this sounds like a christopher tolkien moment as well this is exactly what christopher tolkien did yeah just don't die before you finish your work i guess is the point here no and like who can pick through somebody else's notes and like have an accurate idea of what they wanted to do yeah staying true to the work the short version of this is i don't know anything about medieval literature (laughs) so i have read some it's been a while and it's been not much well that's i feel like that is perfect for us because you have a very good grasp of contemporary literature and those tropes and what we expect in a modern audience so you'll be able to pick out those connections in our medieval text and give us a really great grasp of how we can adapt that i will say i do play a lot of D. yes D&D i was going games. to bring that up since that's the other significant like aspect of this Yes, Mac you was the first DM I ever Ooh. had. Was that your first time DMing Mac or was that Oh no. Like you I'm, had 
Because you started early. You started way early. I was introduced to D&D when I was like 10. That's right. Because that, I only picked it up in university. We might have been the most annoying group of Mac ever had to team for. You weren't, but you were definitely unique. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just remember we sang a lot. We would get distracted and start singing. At least Vine was not a thing at that point, because I've had players start quoting Vines, and then I have to make that canon compliant, which has been frustrating. <laughs> we, in a game we recently played... My husband was DMing and we were playing with his sister who had never played D&D before. And an NPC was like, do you want to come stay the night with us at our camp? And she said, y'all got pizza? (laughs) And like his face just dropped and he was like, yes, we (laughs) can make this pizza. Oh, man. He knows yes and isn't like a law, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know. But that would be a really great moment to be like, to do some background. Like, oh, your character has this food called pizza. What is this pizza yes. you are talking about? Yes. That's incredible. Oh, man. A quest to find the pizza. To find the pizza. Or to invent the pizza. Or to establish yes. whether tomatoes exist in this faux medieval Europe. Oh, gosh. That was my next question. Gosh. That's a good question. <laughs> well, it's the same with distillates. It's like, yeah, I'm going to throw back a shot. I'm like, of What? How like how have your people developed vodka in this culture? <laughs> Do they have vodka? Do they have they whiskey? Have like beer is pretty common, but what is your culture's sure. distillate? I feel like the only reasonable response if you're trying to be medievally accurate is, oh, I met this uh, Arabian philosopher who taught me how to do this. There you go. Or like dragon absinthe or something. Get creative with it. Yeah. It's it's a made-up world. It's a fantasy world so loosely based on reality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just do... Come up with a a magic reason. Yes, there yeah. you go. That, see, that is the joy of D&D. But in any case, shall we begin? I know, Mac, you've got something prepared. And Mary's got the coffee. Fantastic. <laughs> yes. Delivery. I, know, I told him, just sneak in. Just sneak in and give me that coffee. Mm-hmm. One thing, before we start, I do have some news I wanted to share that I just Ooh. received recently. Yes. Yes. An article I wrote about goblins has been accepted for publication. <gasps> Congratulations! Yes! I saw that. About and goblins? it looks so exciting. There's an anthology called Roll for Initiative that uh, a number of people sent me calls for pa- uh, their, their call for papers. And... Mm-hmm. I put together something about how the depiction of goblins from edition to edition is problematic in like a post-colonial way. Mm. True. And it, True. I recently was told it was accepted. That's amazing. That's really, Congratulations. That's really exciting. And I was also told that this anthology is collecting both academic and creative works. <gasps> but they didn't get as many creative works as they wanted. And so they've extended the deadline for poetry and creative nonfiction until June. So I, well. I want to submit something because I actually have a poem about D&D. That's amazing. That I wrote for a class. So for either of you or for our listeners, I will send the link after we're done recording and you can use it and it can go on the blog in case anyone else has stuff they want to submit. Yes, absolutely. I would be very interested in that. I'm sure some listeners would be very interested. Oh, well, congratulations. That is fantastic. So exciting. Oh, it's great to get something published anytime, mm-hmm. but it's even more exciting to get something published that's like about a topic you feel passionate about. Yes. 
I actually yes. had to really rush through writing that paper because it was like I only heard about it a month before the deadline and it was the end uh, of the semester yeah. and I was busy. But goblins are something that I'm just always thinking about. So I already had all the material. I just needed to put it on the page. Goblin core. The best aesthetic. Yes. I feel like that should be on a name tag. Like if you were on a reality show, Mac, always thinking about goblins. It's important. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like what is your core personality trait? There you go. Goblins. Goblins. Yeah. Okay. Well, we've got some shout outs to do, but we can do that at the end because Mary, you've got stuff to edit and stuff to do. Oh boy. I, so like, I just got off of work. I was, I was pumping it up. Like, I just love writing about video games, (laughs) (laughs) but I just got off of work. And now after we record, I have to go back and write like another thing. (laughs) No, I get that. It's hard sometimes when your passion is also your job. Or what you like to do is also your job. It's hard to balance that. Okay. So, Mac, what is our text for this week? All right. So, this is actually something I've had in my back pocket for a while. When Indiana had our way too brief pandemic lockdown, like before we actually started recording this podcast. Yep. Oh my gosh, yes. I translated two texts that we could use. And one of them was our first episode, which was the Tournament of Tottenham. And the other one yes. I've just been hanging on to because I'm like, I don't know if it's time for that. And those, we have our first guest. Now is probably a good time. Yes. Perfect. Oh, gosh. So what do y'all know about the Noel Codex? Noel as in K-N-O-W-E-L-L. N-O-W-E-L-L. It's part of a manuscript called Cotton Vitellius A-15. I know that I've heard of it, but I don't think I'm more familiar with it than that. I guarantee both of you have read something from it. Okay. Really? Yes, because the Noel Codex is best known as the only place where you can find Beowulf. Ah, But yes. Beowulf was not the only text go. in the book. Yes. And it's been theorized that the Noel Codex was actually originally planned to be a book of monsters because Beowulf is about fighting monsters and everything in the book has some relationship to monsters. That's right. I remember learning about this. I mean, it sounds great. Including, weirdly, the life of St. Christopher, because even though nowadays we don't think of him like this, in the medieval time, they were pretty sure that he was not human. What was he? Cunocephalus, or a dog-headed man. Cute. And whether or not he was also a giant and or breathed fire varies from text to text. I'm getting huh. I'm getting so many like Egyptian vibes off of that. Like the dog-headed man. But, you know, dog-headed man breathing fire. Yeah. Sounds cool. And we're going to learn more about them because the text that I've got here is called The Wonders of the East. <gasps> Ooh, yes. You've talked about this one before. I am now- stoked for this. This do sound like it could be a little racist. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> Less than you'd expect. Okay. That's, I mean, that's a nice surprise. The thing is, it has so little relation to reality. Uh. Like, it doesn't say like, oh, yes, people from Pakistan are like such and such. Because I don't think they even mention any real countries because they don't know anything. That sounds about right. I for- like to imagine somebody just sat down and were like, Mm, what do you think's over there? I don't know, like, monsters? <laughs> Dragons? A lot of it is that. Well, that's true. That's true. And a lot of it came from uh, stories as well. So somebody would come back from that place and stories would be passed around about what they saw. And then, 
you get these weird hyperbolic tails that have always, you know, been twisted, of course. And that's why some bestiaries have really weird descriptions. So you can recognize it sort of as a crocodile. And so why does it look like this? And I actually just read one. There's a there's a questing beast and it has a French name as well, which I'm not going to pronounce because my French is terrible. But if you just look up the questing beast, this is in one of the King Arthur, um, like, mm-hmm. not analogs, but sections. And It's a giraffe is what it is. But the way it's described is it's got like a horse's head with little, with horns on top of it, with a really long snake's neck and the body of a goat. And it's spotted. And so you get that kind of description and you're like, what is that? I don't know what that is. That's weird. That's a monster. And you write it down like that. Because how are you going to say a giraffe? Giraffe. How are you going to explain what a giraffe is? So you get these weird descriptions. So I'm excited for this because it sounds like we're going to have like this fantasy world of how certain individuals during the medieval period would see the East and the Middle East. Yes, Uh, this is very much that kind of game of telephone. And which never turns out good. No. No. And it's Never. it's been going for a while because a lot of the stuff in this is based on various things which claim to be letters sent to people like Emperor Hadrian or Emperor Trajan or Aristotle from their friends who were on journeys telling them what they'd seen. And of course, the letters are fake, but <laughs> they get put together into this. And there's even like bits that people take from stories of Alexander the Great that have been mm-hmm. mutated over the while. And a lot of this comes from Pliny the Elder, who himself mm-hmm. was basing this on stuff he'd read elsewhere. Oh yes, my great-great-grandpappy has a letter of Aristotle's that describes this, that, and the other thing about what's over there in the Middle East. Right. So this is a thousand years of people <laughs> misunderstanding each other when they come back wow. from like India and like, here's what I saw, and it gets messed up. Amazing. I love this. There's just layers of incorrect Exactly. <laughs> one last thing. There is one human mortal given a proper name, so our court section isn't really going to work. So rather than pick a character, uh, I would suggest that we're going to have to just pick a representative of one of these strange peoples we're about to hear about. Okay. Ambassador of whatever. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, <clears throat> here's how it starts. The Settlement. At the beginning of the land, Antimolima does not exist. Fair enough. (laughs) Might be a misspelling of Anatolia that got out of hand. Oh, okay. Oh, also, when was this written so that we have some context? So uh, according to where it came from, it came from Aristotle and Pliny and blah, blah, blah. But when was this actually... Oh, this is... Well, since it's in the same manuscript as Beowulf, you know we're talking Mm -hmm. Old English era. Mm -hmm. It was translated from a Latin original. Okay. But there are multiple versions of this, all of which I think are in, or at least this strand of the tradition is in the English area, and it's all like 10th century, that kind of area. Okay. Okay. Very good. So we're talking pre-Norman invasion, but not by a lot. Yes. Anyway, the settlement at the beginning of the land Antimolima is 500 of the smaller miles, which are called stadia, and 368 of the larger miles, which are called leagues, in measure. I might start skipping those because it gives measurements for all of them and they don't make any sense. Well, I, I sort of understand the whole leagues to Stadia because you're going from a, a Roman to, you know, the the Old English or the, the new measurement of whatever they're right. using. But of course, neither of these measurements were current in England at the time. And 
the <laughs> conversion rate between them from sentence to sentence is not the same. Fantastic. Was this someone trying to make a new thing happen? Like, hey guys, look at these little miles right. <laughs> that I've come up with. I think it was more likely that you have, you've got two different units of measurements that are used. And so they're trying to give like a comparison, sort of like using a gloss. And right. then they just don't make sense anymore because they're not used anymore. Like our league is, I believe a league is three nautical sure. miles. that sounds right. Which is different than statuette miles. Because you have to know both if you're, you know, for instance, if you're flying or if you're using a chart or if you're sailing. Mm -hmm. So go figure. What these are, I don't know. Right. And I think this is a result of just the fact that it's gone through so many different versions. Because, like, league is like a continental European measurement and stadia right. is an old Roman measurement. It's also where we get the word stadium. A stadia mm -hmm. is how big a stadium mm -hmm. is around because it was originally a racetrack. It's also this... Maybe has nothing to do with it, but I'm interested to think about. It's also the name of Google's new gaming platform. I did notice that when yeah. I went to try and get this information, is that when I Googled Stadia, what I got was their gaming Google's platform. Google's like, hey, have you heard of our thing? Yeah. Amazing. I assume Rome it's never dies. like I assume it's it's cognate because like stadium is gaming yeah. and stadium comes from Stadia yeah. and yeah, I don't know. True enough. Or maybe it's a really big controller. I don't know. It's supposed to, like, the concept is, like, everything's in the cloud, and you can play games on any device. So, like, theoretically, you could play a game on your iPad like screen. It. Interesting. They're not doing great, <laughs> I'm being honest. I was going to say, they'd have to really work hard against PlayStation and Xbox and yep. those systems. I honestly am not a fan of any game that requires me to be online. It's just like, it's not a good thing when, you know, like I consider myself pretty up on video games. I had not even heard of this yeah. before I started writing about video games a few months ago. And then I was like, oh, wait, what? Google is doing games? <laughs> That's not a good sign. No, no. Any game which requires an internet connection is a trap because they'll use it to get money out of you. So they want you to pay yeah. to play yeah. online. Or yeah. they'll push updates that break everything. Fair enough. Anyway, Stadia. Yes. On that Good island man. are a great many sheep. And from there to Babylon, Love it. it is measured 168 stadia and 150 leagues. And now I am going to share my screen because I have visual aids. Yes. All right. It. We will share these on the blog as well and in our show notes. You know what? I was just thinking I need this to be a sheep. Yep. It's Wait, a sheep. I can't see anything. You guys can see it? Yes. It's a... Beautiful sheep. I can't see anything. I just see you guys. There is a chunk of tech support, which I have edited out. The reason for these visual aids is because both of the surviving manuscripts of this that I was able to get a hold of are illustrated. Ooh. I love it. One, clearly very professionally done, is the one that's uh, uh -oh. both in English and in Latin. Like, it's a parallel text, and that's the Tiberius manuscript. And the one that is in the Noel Codex, along with Beowulf, is very not professionally illustrated. But they're clearly both working from the same series of standard illustrations. Okay, okay. So they're both based on the same images. And there's a lot of scholarly stuff about like how the very amateurish drawings of the Noel Codex are actually more interesting from like a symbolic point of view. And like Asa Simon Mittman, who's the big monsters guy, talks about it. Uh, but I'm not going to go into it because it's the kind of talk that involves Derrida and I have no time for Derrida. 
Nobody, nobody does. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. But, so the very first picture in our manuscript, this is the one from the Noel Codex. It's a sheep. Yes. You know, as I'm kind of glancing, I think I can tell which one is not professionally illustrated. Image number two is the, the image that goes in the same spot in the Tiberius manuscript. It's also sheep, but it's like a herd of them in a field, and there's a jug with, like, water flowing from it that they're drinking from, and it looks very nice. Mm-hmm. It kind of does look like a strange eldritch umbilical cord. It does. Yeah, I actually yeah. had to look up other versions of these images to figure out that that was supposed to be a jug with water. Yeah, it does look vaguely biologically organic. Yeah, my first thought was like it was some kind of oversized radish. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I, I do like the shape that's looking you know, at us. He's giving us a grin. Yeah. It's, I think it's working. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we've got our sheep. The settlement is the most inhabited by merchants. There are born rams of the greatness in size of oxen, which dwell as far as the city of the Medes. The name of that city is Archimedon. Well, the Medes are a real people. Yes, but there is no city called Archimedon. In fact, I think Archimedon is a personal name or a title because it, I'm pretty sure it just means leader of the Medes. Yeah. Hmm. It is the greatest city, except for Babylon. Okay, well, that was unnecessary. <laughs> Welcome to medieval literature. There are so many unnecessary side notes. Just petty. It's, it's pretty great, except for this place. And at this point in the text, we get other illustrations, which are more sheep, but these look angry. Now these, they're angry sheep. <laughs> they look vaguely reptilian. They do. If you yeah. don't realize that they're fluffy, they could look like they're scaled. They also have abs. <laughs> Very defined abs. I've, I've been noticing this tendency in the Noel Codex Illustrated. Those little hatched lines are just how he draws wool. Just on everything. It's like yeah. there's wool. You can tell by yeah. the little dashes. Yes. I assume these are supposed to be the ox-sized sheep. Uh, I also note that mm. one is hovering off the edge of a rock like a Looney Tune. Yes. Very true. Yes. This does seem like a situation of like, oh, I just don't feel like finishing the background. Either that or they haven't really quite gotten, you know, contra right. so they can't quite get the movement down. I love the angry sheep, yes. though. The version from Tiberius is much nicer. Although all of his backgrounds and landscapes have a very Dr. Seuss feel to them. Yeah. Oh, now that you said that, that just ruined it for me. Now all of this <laughs> looks like Dr. Seuss. <laughs> All of these professional ones, because it's got the pink background, and the yeah. eyes are just a little too creepy looking. Yeah, mostly it's the texture of the ground that gives me that impression, because it looks like they're... Sort of swirly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks like they're all standing on ice cream. That's true. Maybe they are. Maybe they are. These are much gentler sheep, I think. Yes. Yeah. They're having a leaf. They're, they don't have abs. <laughs> No, I mean, well, the text only says they're big. It doesn't say they're angry. This is true. Anyway, from Babylon to Archimedon, in case you needed to know, is 300 stadia and 200 leagues. I'm going to start skipping these measurements because they're all over the place. They are. There are the Great Wonders. They are in Archimedon, I assume. Which were the works that the great Macedonian Alexander ordered to be built. That's all the information we get on that, though. That's all we get for Alexander the Great? He comes and goes a lot in this text, like in the background, because one of the source texts for this information is the romance of Alexander the Great. Which romance? Mm. That I don't know. I think just the general tradition. Ah, okay. Okay. 
Fair enough. So like he's mentioned in the background a bunch. He he's the person I'm who I said was the only named mortal human in the text. Is that oh, wow. I keep referencing Alexander the Great as having been involved in this way or that way. Alright. Hmm. I like that it's a side note because he would be extremely upset and petty about the fact that he's only a side note, and I appreciate that. <laughs> True. <laughs> Feels intentional. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> There is a certain place when one travels to the Red Sea that is called Lintibulcinia. I don't think that's real either. But in this place, hens are born, which are like those with us, of red color. And there is one. We do have some now, red hens. Now, is this a hen like the ones with us? Well, its feet do look deeply messed up, but I think that's the illustrator failing to realize how to draw one foot that's behind another foot. Yeah, and... <laughs> criticize this art too much because I cannot say that I would do a better job. Yeah, that is now. that is always something that you that I feel like With we should remember. Thousands of years of art history, I wouldn't do a better yeah, job. Yeah, like now. I'm pretty sure that if someone handed me a piece of paper and said draw a chicken, it would look a lot like this. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, especially cuz he's not a professional illustrator. No. Presumably right. this is the copyist. This is the only part of this whole codex that has illustrations because this text is supposed to come with illustrations and you're supposed to copy out the ones from the version you're... So he's like looking at probably much better illustrations and trying to do his version of... That is an awful task. Poor guy. (laughs) Are we not going to talk about the wonders? We're just done with that now? No, that's all. You just need to know they're there. Okay, cool. The chickens are more important. You know, sounds cool, but yes. let's talk about chickens. Here's why the chickens are important. Because if any man wishes to seize them, you know how when you see a chicken, you want to seize it. Yes. Legend yes. of Zelda. <laughs> or touches them, then all of his body burns up at once. Excuse me? So we have magical flaming chickens. Yes. Uh, the ne- very next sentence is, these are extraordinary witchcrafts. <laughs> I would die for these chickens. <laughs> They're awesome. I mean, that is apparently their whole purpose, is if you want them, you end up dying because you spontaneously combust if you touch them. Imagine the power of that. Could you weaponize these chickens? Siege warfare. You starve the people out, and then you give them the chickens. You send in the chickens. But how do you convince the chickens to go there if you can't touch them? Sheepdogs. The sheepdogs would burn too, though, and that feels even No, they don't have to touch them. That's the thing. You just herd them in the right direction. Would chickens who have this natural, like, defense actually be scared by a barking dog enough to go where it's hurting them? Chickens are really dumb. That's true. They're really dumb. I, are these chickens the apex predators of this this area? They might be. They seem untouchable. This is, a, this is amazing. Can you imagine if they had hot wings, the advertising slogans <laughs> that you could come up with? <laughs> Flaming hot wings. (laughs) We've replaced the wings in this buffalo wild wings with lintel bassinian chicken. Let's see if they notice. Oh, no. Everything's burnt to ash. Oh, man. I I mean, my brain is broken in the specific way of anytime I hear of something even mildly interesting, I'm like, how could I work this into a D&D campaign? Of course. That is like the entire ethos of this podcast. That is. That's what we do. I just have so many questions. Like, after you kill the chicken, like, if you could shoot a chicken with an arrow, mm-hmm. w- would you then be able to touch it after it was dead? 
Is it only going to burn you to a crisp while it's alive? That These are I important think questions. that would work because if it's if it's dead, maybe you want to leave it for a couple minutes. You know, I sort of want to come at it like basilisk venom. Like you kill the basilisk, mm. you can harvest the venom. So what about the chicken? Like what glands does it have that make it like flame? So if you shoot it and you kill it, then can you harvest the chicken for? spontaneous well not spontaneous but combustion properties like you can make a flaming arrow by using the gland of this chicken on your arrowhead i completely understand why we didn't talk about the wonders anymore now is because we had to get to this <laughs> the text was like i know what's interesting i feel like the the way you'd get adapt to this to arrows would be to use the chicken's feathers as fletching Ooh, but that presumes that it's the feathers which they do have natural oils. Birds have natural oils when they preen to keep them dry. So maybe mm-hmm. that's what's combustible. So you would want to harvest the feathers. Mm-hmm. This is why I wanted to do this text at some point, because basically what we have here is a campaign setting. Yes, we do. We yes. really do. <laughs> okay, we have to. We do have to save some of our D&D ideas for our D&D segment at the end. Wait, there's a D&D Segment? We do. So we, we compile all of our ideas. We see what we can come up with, what quests or items that we can come up with from the text. I mean, obviously, these chickens are going to Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like I said, how to make these work in a D&D campaign is a large part of the ethos of our podcast. You know, it's almost like it's just here for you. Just throw these chickens into your game. What more do you need? See what happens. Well, I'll tell you what more you need, because also... Wild beasts are born there. These beasts, when they hear a person's voice, they flee far away. These beasts have eight feet and the eyes of Valkyries and two heads. And before I move to the image, I want to say my first thought, which was only increased by when I saw the illustrations, was, are you describing two animals standing next to each other? Oh, no. (laughs) But, but... The other important thing about them is, if any man wishes to seize these beasts, they attack with their cruel sting. These are extraordinary beasts. And here's our Null Codex version. Yes! Those are 100% (laughs) two two of the same thing standing side by side. Yes. It looks a little better in the Tiberius version, but it still absolutely looks like two dogs standing next to each other. It really does. (laughs) Yeah, like they couldn't make it like a push me pull you, where it's got like a head on each end. This isn't, you know, like a cat dog situation. <laughs> <laughs> They're just, it's just two two wolves. Yes, they are wild beasts hanging out. Apparently, they do have a cruel sting, and I don't know what the eyes of Valkyries entail, but they've got those two. There we go. I don't know what a cruel sting means either. I would lean more towards the idea that this is highly metaphorical in nature. (laughs) But for the purposes of D&D, you can make it as literal as you want. But I would say a cruel sting is like you really don't want to get swiped by one of these things. Right. Or bitten. Or or whatever. Anything. It's like a two-headed dire wolf. Basically. It's honestly pretty cute. It is kind of cute. I mean, I want one, but... (laughs) Could you imagine just two Delilahs? joined as one i can but that would be incredibly chaotic and destructive <laughs> which one would get the dentist stick you'd have to get double the amount of food and dentist sticks that's true yep because even if it's all going to the same stomach they would have concerns about who gets to taste it yes for sure yes okay so we've got the chickens and we've got the double-headed wolves 
Yes. Honestly, loving all of these animals. Sounds like a great vacation spot. Uh, we're moving on from uh, Lint- Lintipulcinia now because there's a land called Hasselintia, which again, as far as I know, no, there isn't. When one travels to Babylon, it is subject to the kingdom of the Medes, and that land is filled with all good things. Now, I'm not sure whether this next sentence is an example of that or uh, <laughs> a but. Like, is it an and or a but? Don't know, but. Right. This place has snakes. <laughs> Here are some snakes, by the way. Come on, people, use qualifiers. The snakes have two heads. Their eyes shine at night as bright as a lamp. Don't like that. Ooh. Yeah, so once again, our Noel Codex just looks like two snakes next to each other, although I do like the coloration he gave them. I was going to say the color yeah. is beautiful. They have a nice a nice pattern. I think the Tiberius one looks much more dynamic, though, even though it has a more boring pattern. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're sort of... I mean, you can really get that there's two heads on one Yes, that's movie. exactly what I was saying, is it looks much more like a snake with two heads rather than two snakes next to each other. Yes. Yes. The background does look Dr. Susie. It really does. <laughs> Still. Apparently, that's all we need to know about the snakes. Two heads, glowing eyes. I don't... I, that's a that's a but for me. I don't think that's one of the wonderful, <laughs> wondrous things. I do like the glowing Two-headed eyes. Two-headed snakes are really going to bring the place down a couple of notches for me. Well, it didn't say that they're venomous. I don't know. Maybe they're nice snakes. Honestly, if we're going by Tiberius, they don't even have a teeth. That's Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> also, like, think about how terrifying it would be to see the eyes glowing at night. Yeah. Just in the distance coming towards you. That would be unsettling. I think it also depends a lot on how big these snakes are. I guess we don't have anything to compare it to for size in this picture, but it looks big. Yeah, like just the general appearance of it in, in these pictures makes me think we're more anaconda than garter snake. But I was going to say at mm-hmm. least big enough to eat a chicken. Yes. But not one that would burn True. it. To death. I don't know. You could you could create an ecosystem here where they're invulnerable to the chickens. They've evolved that. They would be unstoppable then. Well, then you could have. Now I'm just running with this. You could have like snake hide that you could put over your armor to be invulnerable to fire. I like these. That would be great. But anyway, next beast. Where where are we going next? For future. And apparently we're done with this land that's filled with all good things. Well, now, what are some of the good things in this land? <laughs> Doesn't matter. We only heard about the snake. Maybe the person who wrote this is a big fan of snakes. It's just like, what more do you need? <laughs> you have double snakes. Or or it's a warning. It's like it's got everything great except... But also the snake is there. Thing. In a certain land, we don't know the name of this one, apparently, asses are born that have horns as big as oxen. That's uh, the the horned ass on the right there. The horned ass. Now, why does one of these horns look like it's growing out of its neck? Because he's a scribe and not an artist. I feel like somewhere from beyond the grave, this guy is like, I did the best I could, you guys. (laughs) Poor guy. Well, again, like Asa Simon Mittman is a huge fan of this guy's work. He thinks it's way more evocative. It's fun. Like, it's definitely more fun. It's definitely evocative. I don't disagree there. What it's evoking is the question. (laughs) Also, is the creature on the left here supposed to be one of the 
the snakes or is that an oxen as well? What is that? Oh, we're getting to that. I like oh, we're getting to pattern. that. Okay, I was just checking that it wasn't an ox. <laughs> no. Okay. Anyway, these, these asses with horns like oxen. These are in the greatest wilderness, which is on the south side of Babylon. They live by the Red Sea because of the many snakes that are in that place, which are called Corsius. What are they? Corsius. C-O-R-S-I-A-S. Corsius. Okay. Apparently that's what the snakes are called. And do the asses eat the snakes? Honestly, there is no connection given to how these two interact with each other. They're just Are they there. friends? They look like they're friends. Yeah, I mean, they just like they're hanging Could out. Could these asses be antelope? Ooh. I would say highly likely. That's <laughs> this, my guess. This is how yeah. they're describing antelope. Because, I mean, antelope are big. Yeah. And they've got they the have horns. horns. They're kind of they're the same body model. Yeah. And they live south mm-hmm. of Babylon, although do. I don't know how directly south. Possibility. Well, neither neither does the text. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, you know, somewhere south, there's uh, right. these horned, horned guys. And of course, I mean, if I were given the phrase, the greatest wilderness, which is on the south side of Babylon, my first thought would be, this is something that lives in the Sahara. Yeah. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. that is one of the greatest wildernesses on the planet, and it is kind of southish of Babylon. Future Mac here. I actually looked into whether there are antelopes who live in the Sahara, and there are a few different species, more than one of which has impressive horns. I'm going to take a guess and say that the one we're probably hearing about is the scimitar oryx which not only has impressive horns, but was in the past domesticated by both ancient Egypt and ancient Rome. I found a number of indications that the ancient Romans raised them for their horns, but no indication of what those horns were for. So, eh. Also, some people have speculated that the scimitar oryx is where the myth of the unicorn comes from, because... If you look at it from the side, it does look like it only has one horn. And also, if they break off a horn, they don't grow a new one. So it's possible that they could have just seen one that really did have one horn. I don't know. Just some speculation there. Thank you. Back to our regular program. Hey, the snake looks a little happy to me. And I know it's just... (laughs) The one on the left? I know it's... Yeah, I know it's just the drawing of, like, its head, but just kind of how there's a double line around its head just makes it look like it's No, it does look very happy, and it's very colorful. It does. It also almost, I don't know if this is just the angle or what, it kind of almost looks like not a snake as much as, like, a Komodo dragon style. I am not up on reptiles, but, like, it looks looks too chubby to be a snake. That's true. Well, we haven't gotten to this one yet. That's true. We don't. Oh, I thought this was the snake. No, this was, this is the snake. We just don't know anything about it yet. Oh, okay. Other than what they're called. And I'm going to switch to the Tiberius one now because the next sentence is inaccurate to the drawing. Because these snakes have horns as great as those as rams. That's bizarre. So here is the Tiberius picture, which has wow. where the snakes do in fact have ram's horns. These are 100% like antelopes. Yeah. <laughs> and little dragon snakes. Are there lizards with horns? They're so cute. Not that I know of. Oh, I'm gonna Google this because I'm just like curious. that. I mean, from an aesthetic standpoint, there should be, but there, I don't know if they actually exist. I mean, there's 
horned lizards, but it's not yeah, like... Yeah, but that's just, like, spines over right. their ears. Yeah, it's not, like, ram Yeah. Horns. Well, maybe that's the only way they could describe it. I don't know. That's very odd. Anyway, these snakes, if they strike or touch any man, then he at once dies. Ooh. In that land, there is an abundance of pepper. Oh, cool. That pepper is guarded by the snakes. Uh-oh. In there, and... I wasn't sure exactly how to translate this word, but the options I was able to dig up are devotion, eagerness, fervor, or diligence. Those are honestly all great. Amazing. (laughs) The pepper is taken by people in this way, that when one lights that place on fire and... (laughs) And then the snakes flee down into the earth. Because of this, the pepper is black. How we get black peppercorns, y'all. Yes. Yes, you have to set it on fire to scare away the snakes that guard it. So you can harvest the peppercorn. Naturally. Well, the, I mean, there is white peppercorn and pink peppercorn and black peppercorn. Right. So this makes sense. Yeah. In a very medieval way, this makes a lot of sense. There's actually something that comes up more than once in one of the things that I'm not sure is problematic or just weird about some of these texts is whenever they're talking about, like, people with dark skin, they assume it's, like, the result of fire or sun exposure and not just, like, how they're born. Mm-hmm. So, they're like, these are these are people with black skin, so we assume that the land they live in is on fire. Like, that's just their first jump is, like, if it looks, like, dark, it must just be burnt. That's kind of badass, though. I wouldn't want yeah. to mess with those people. Like, yes, that assumption is a little misguided. Mm-hmm. Very misguided. But also, it would be cool. Yeah. And at least in this text, that is... Because they, they do get a mention, but that is literally all they say about it. Wow. Like, there are people with very dark skin. It's because the land they live in is on fire. It does seem like everything is on fire to some degree. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> The chickens are on fire. We've got to light up the place to get pepper. And didn't the the dogs breathe fire? Yes. Mm-hmm. Saint so Christopher. Fire all over the place here. And we're actually getting to those dogs soon because they are not another one of the ones mentioned in the text. Fantastic. Okay, what is next? Well, next we have to know the distance from Babylon to Persia, where the pepper grows, stadia and leagues, and also that that place is wasteland because of the many snakes. So the Sahara. What? Yeah. We're basically mapping it out here. It is It is the Sahara Desert, presumably. Right. I just, what did the snakes do to make it a wasteland? Don't put this on the snakes. <laughs> no idea. Well, clearly the people had to burn the entire land and then it was uninhabitable. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and that's the snake's fault. I, just, I feel like this is a human projection onto these snakes. Very much so. The snakes don't deserve this. Well, it's also a question of, like, the definition of wasteland, because in some medieval texts, a wasteland just means any land that's not being cultivated, as in it's going to right. waste. That's true. And that's that reminds me of the difference between a forest and the woods, because mm-hmm. isn't a forest like the king, like the king's forest is a particular mm-hmm. plot of land that belongs to the king. It's like saying a national park. It belongs to the right. government. Versus just the wilderness or the woods. So that's an important distinction to make about wastelands and owned properties and the state. Yeah, and this is something that also that comes up sometimes in very northern texts, like the voyage of Athra and Wolfstown, which are like some Scandinavian slash Old English texts about sailing of the north coast of Scandinavia. 
and they describe a lot of the area up there as wasteland, not because it's cold, but because the only people who live there are nomads, and therefore they're not cultivating the land, and therefore the land is mm-hmm. going to waste. That makes sense. The Sami people, the makes reindeer sense. herders. Yeah, exactly. They're, that definition of wasteland runs into like some problematic stuff later on. Mm-hmm. That would explain how snakes can make it a wasteland, though, as no one wants to farm there because it's full of snakes. True. Makes sense. Snakes that will instantly kill you if, right. they, <laughs> if they bite you. And that guard Pepper for some reason. They love Pepper. Pepper was valuable. Yeah, maybe, they, maybe they just like the pepper. This, I mean, this is kind of giving me, I don't know. There's just so much here I have questions about. It almost reminds me of in Gilgamesh when Humbaba is protecting the forest. Mm. Why is he protecting the forest? I don't know. Somebody told him to. It's his job. It's his job. Somebody told these snakes to guard yeah. the pepper. There you go. But may yeah. I present to you the idea that instead of dragons guarding gold, you can have horned ground worms or snakes or rims or you know w-y-r-m whatever worms guarding pepper because pepper was an incredibly important and valuable spice like cinnamon so you can create any kind of value system you want in your culture could be pepper true you could also include as a quest a cook who desperately needs a certain kind of pepper and your players have to go get it and it's guarded by these snakes. <laughs> you gotta do a pepper heist. <laughs> I'm just saying. With the snakes. Thinking about like dragons and hordes, I want the snakes to guard more than pepper. I want them to have just like all of these rare ingredients that they're hanging on to. Yes. They have very refined taste buds, these snakes. These snakes, yes. They're just like gourmand snakes. Yes. <laughs> well, we do know that they smell with their tongues, so they must have very, very sensitive taste buds. Moving on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but we're only on, like, page two of three, four, five, oh six, seven, eight. Oh boy! <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Keep going, keep going. Also, there are born half-hounds, which are called konopinus, which is probably a corruption of kunocephali, which is what they call, you know, dog head kunocephali. Ah. But here it's konopinus. Konopinus. And they have the manes of horses, and the tusks of boars, and the heads of hounds, and their breath is like the flames of fire. Lions! Could be. Oh, except these are... the manes. Yeah. It doesn't say specifically what the other half is, but Mm. judging by the illustration, it's half person. Oh my gosh. Oh. This changes things. An alternative to a tabaxi. I was thinking gnoll, but yeah. There you go. Either way. Depends on whether you want to make it more of a playable class or a monster class. Why not? Why not both? True. Yeah. Future Mac here. I kind of let this one slip by, but I thought I should note that the assumption of Tabaxi versus Gnoll as a playable race is definitely an artifact of the different times at which Zoe and I came into D&D. Zoe came in with 5th edition, where apparently Tabaxi are just a commonly accepted playable race. I came in with 3rd edition, where I don't know if Tabaxi even made an appearance. Which is fine, because cat people are kind of played out, you know? However, I have had multiple campaigns in which PCs played gnolls, and I rather like gnolls, so I usually make them available as a playable race in my own games. So, I think that's part of the reason that Zoe thinks tabaxi and I think gnolls is just 
the different kind of editions that we're used to thinking in. Back to our regularly scheduled programming. No, thank you. Oh, by the way, these guys come up in like almost every travelogue. They're also in Marco Polo. They're also in John Mandeville. Wow. The ones that get really specific about geography actually give them a homeland, and it's the Andaman and Nicobar Islands in the Indian Ocean. What? Which you may have heard of before, because the Andaman Islands contain one of the most interesting things, is the only completely uncontacted tribe in the world, because every time the modern world tries to get near them, they stab them. So you're telling me that these people exist, and they haven't been contacted, so... We don't know what they look like. Well, I think we have a couple satellite photos. I mean, fair. But where's your spirit of adventure? Uh, The Andaman Islands are obviously like every other place in the area. They suffered heavily from British colonialism. And Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. one island basically decided we're not interested. And so for the past few hundred years, every time anyone has tried to get them to join the rest of the world, they just throw spears until they go away. Wow. Honestly, good for them. Yeah, no, it's the right approach. They were in the news a few years ago because a missionary decided to try and convert them, and they killed killed. him with spears. Of course they did. (laughs) Look. Duh. Saw that one coming. (laughs) This illustration is fantastic. I know. I like it a lot. I really like that in this one, he's got, like, the regal clothing, and he looks so good. And the next one, the next guy, he's just naked. Well, like, this guy has style. That's one of the ways in which the two differ that Mittman talks about is that the Noel Codex gives the dog-headed men, like, not only clothing, but, like, noble clothing. Yeah. Whereas the other one just makes them naked so you can, I guess, see them better? I don't know. Well, I think there's, I think you could infer a bit of, not classism per se, but sort of that colonialist mindset where you're like, well, we're the civilized and these people are obviously not. And you sort of, you can always, you could read that into it. It depends on how you want to look at it and how you read the text. Mm -hmm. Difficult to do from an illustration, but it's interesting to compare the two. The second one is just butt naked. He's just out there. I like the delicately placed red splotch to cover his delicates. Yeah, I think this might have been like the work of some later intervention because a lot yeah. of the yeah. a lot of the images in the Tiberius manuscript have splotches in strategic locations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like we're we're painting fig like leagues here. Some some prudish person years later was like, we've got to cover up all these. T- Can't have it. I also like that he's delicately eating a leaf from a Dr. Seuss bush. Yes, vegetarian. Also, his face looks more pig-like than hound-like to me. I think that's just a a factor of like the coloration because I'm not sure if it's faded or if he didn't color in the head too. Yeah. No, you're right. The ear does look vaguely hound-like or very vaguely pig-like. I think this one is more like a hound, and in the other one. It's, like, a different breed of dog. They're different dog heads. Also, and I hate to be the one to say this. That boo. <laughs> no, you're right. <laughs> He's got like, a dump truck. got a dump truck. Thick, with three Cs. That was an artistic choice. It was. I'm sure it was. I mean, I'm just saying, you painted him with a booty and naked. That's all I need to say. That's <laughs> all I'm gonna say. Like, the other version of this hound man is going to go to a fabulous party later. Is going to go, you know, form a parliament. This guy, he's just here to party. He is here to party. These are the astute observations I bring. (laughs) (laughs) We appreciate them, always. 
Anyway, their land is near the cities which are filled with all worldly wealth. That is, the southern part of Egypt. That checks out. Apparently that's where all worldly wealth is, southern Egypt. Well, that's where all the historical wealth would have been. I mean, the pyramids were topped with gold. Mm-hmm. Originally speaking, it is a very wealthy area. That's mm-hmm. true, but I do like like the place with all worldly wealth. That is southern Egypt. Southern just Egypt. so you know where all the worldly wealth is. So he does list Egypt. Yes. Okay. Good to know. Yeah, there there are a couple times when he's like, okay, this is a place we know, like the Babylon, Egypt, Persia, and mm-hmm. we get a few made up rivers, but also the Nile. That checks out. Okay. Question: How do we know that they're made up? And not historically, they were there, but the course of the river flow has changed over time, and we don't have a currently flowing river there at that point. That is a mm. good question. I've been assuming they're made up because the people who, the sources I have, just refer to them as rivers that don't exist or invented rivers. <laughs> but maybe, maybe they didn't think of that either. Because there were, oh man, I can't think of the old English text, but there's a, there's a river battle essentially. And the current river shape has changed. So there used to be this big, long kind of island area where half of the troops are standing on and then the enemy troops are on the other side. And that's not there anymore. And it's a much bigger river. So it's like, how could you have forded this? You couldn't do that. But I think you're thinking the day, of the Battle of Malden, if anyone yes, wants to look this up. That is what I'm talking about. Yes, the Battle of Malden. Thank you. I should remember this, but I don't. But yeah, so that river's totally changed. And so my question is always... because. I guess coming from Alaska, we have braided rivers that change based on the seasons. So in the wintertime, we get all the snow. And then when we get the glacial melt, the river shoots up and it changes its course depending on how much glacial flow there is. So we've had, not we as in my family, but our, our town and community has had to move part of the town to make room for that river because it's cutting into the the land and so it's totally changed shifted over the past 50 years so if we're talking about you know a 1000 year plus difference or whatever what could that look like it's true that's a good point i had no idea about braided rivers i guess for me i think it's really we have a tendency to make fun of some of these medieval authors which yes some of their ideas were truly really dumb but some of the sometimes we ought to give them a little bit more credit because their world was very different from our world. And how would we cope with that, you know? For sure. I am not sure how I would cope with naked dogmen. That's true. Not well. (laughs) Fair enough. I wouldn't cope with that well. I also just want to say I love that you said, you know, the community had to move part of the town. Yes. Not we had to figure out how to tamp down this river. We just moved the town. It's Alaska. We know not to mess with nature. We're not going to get in the way of that. We'll just move. (laughs) Some other folks need to learn that lesson. True. True. Every time Zoe talks about Alaska, I start thinking, oh, maybe I should move up there. Then I remember it's cold and I don't. Yeah. I mean, right now, Texas is colder than Alaska, so. Point. (laughs) (laughs) Plus, you were there when it was like minus 50 at Purdue. Yes, it is frequently colder in Indiana than Alaska. And that's how I know that I can't handle the cold in Indiana. I'm not going to try and handle the cold in Alaska. (laughs) Depends on where you are. Some of Alaska is very temperate. Anyway. Anyway, in a certain land, people are born who are six feet in height. Okay. They have beards down to their knees and hair to their heels. They are called homo dubii, that is, doubtful ones, and they live on raw fish and eat that. 
Noel Codex does not include a picture of the Homo Dubii, but Tiberius does, and I really like it. Let's oh. see it. Oh my gosh. That is an epic beard. It's a yeah. really <laughs> epic beard, also strategically placed. Yes. Yeah. I also like how he, how he's just holding the fish in his whole fist and like just not eating just it, just kind of kiss. Pla- yeah, giving it like maybe play, maybe sniffing it. Yeah. Like I'm not sure what's going on there. Yeah. But it's a very distressed-looking fish that's just, like, brushing up against his face. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, a six-foot-tall man has just yanked it out of the water. As he's combing his beard with his other hand. Yes. His strangely large hands. Yes. Yes, very large hands. Again, the booty on his Yeah, I wasn't going to say it, because I didn't want to be that person <laughs> twice, but... I think we can all acknowledge that the Tiberius illustrator just knew what a well-shaped butt looked like. Everybody's got a thing. Notice that the hair covers the butt, but he drew the butt first and then just did some little lines for that part of the hair. That's true. You gotta make sure you're showing off. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also like these people are six feet tall. So, like, tall, but not, like, abnormally tall. And their only attributes are they eat fish Mm -hmm. and they're doubtful. So I feel like this is just... The explorer describing some people he met didn't believe what he was saying. Yeah. Either that or, like, are we doubtful that they existed? Also possible. And I would say the text also adds another layer of doubt because they accidentally call another group later the same name. They call them Homo Dubii. Homo Dubii. Interesting. Even though that group has a name elsewhere and it's clear that a scribe somewhere just got confused. Fair enough. When you're questioning your sexuality, <laughs> homo dubii. <laughs> I've also heard it suggested that maybe it's supposed to be it's doubtful whether or not these are pre- are people or like apes. Oh, that's a fascinating idea. They sound like but people. Especially if we're talking about beards, though. Yeah. We don't really see any apes with beards. That's true. But these are full body beards. So maybe these are just fur. really hairy. Yeah. Could be fur. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Unclear. Fair enough. Also, there is a river called Capi in that same place. Said place is called Gorgonius. That is Valkyrie. I like that. To, apparently, to the like English um, translator, they're like, "Okay, Gorgon, Gorgon. How do I describe Gorgon?" They're like Valkyries. Hmm. That makes sense. Okay, that makes sense. That's like um, that's what they did with nymphs and elves as well. The old English switched nymph mm-hmm. to elf in a lot of cases. And you know, like you can see like Gorgons like. The Medusa kind of Gorgon, not the D&D kind right. of Gorgon. Mm-hmm. Being like, okay, they're Valkyries. Yes. You could do a feminist reading of that. That would be very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Of Gorgons or Valkyries? Because I feel oh. like both have probably been done at least once. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. But I've seen some modern discourse about how Medusa is kind of a villainized character for the wrong reasons. And so it would be mm-hmm. interesting to do a reading of how the... Northern European peoples who conceptualize Gorgons as Valkyries would read into the Medusa myth if they'd heard about it. Because Valkyries and Gorgons have a very different connotation Mm -hmm. based on their own myths. But how do we how do we talk about that cross culturally? That does sound like an interesting study to do. Yeah. Well, get busy. I know. (laughs) So many papers to write. Anyway, in this place, Gorgonius, there are born ants as big as hounds. Don't like that. They have feet like grasshoppers. They are red colored and black colored. Incidentally, I'm going to switch to the illustration that goes with this just so you can experience some what the f***. What? 
Exactly. Those are not ants. This is not an ant. This is truly, this is like H.P. Lovecraft peeking behind the veil, seeing something you're not supposed to see, (laughs) going mad because of it. Okay, keep going with your description. I want to see how these line up. Yeah, some parts of it will start making sense, but the way the Noel Codex guy has rendered it never makes more sense. Okay, good to know. But... These ants, they have feet like grasshoppers, they are red-colored and black-colored. The ants delve up gold from the earth, from before night to the fifth hour of the day. Five hours after sunrise is uh, old-fashioned timekeeping there. Mm -hmm. Those who are daring enough to take the gold take with them camel mares with their foals and stallions. They tie up the foals before they travel over the river, which I think is what's going on in that bottom right section. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. They pack the gold onto the mares and mount them and abandon the stallion there. When the ants find them, while the ants are engaged with the stallion, the men travel over the river with the mare and the gold. They are so swift that one thinks they are flying. Okay, this does make sense in the picture. Yeah, you you can kind of see it. You've got the three camels. Mm -hmm. You've got the gold chest on the mare with the guy in the blue. Yep. And you've got the little That, like, rip near the top is them digging gold out of the earth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But why do they look like foxes? Don't know. The only indication I've found is that the phrase ants as big as hounds confused people. And so we have these very dog-like ants. And some articles talking about this actually refer to them, this section, as the ant dogs. Like... Ant eater, but they have the they have the back legs of a grasshopper. Yeah, what lives over there with a the, with really bouncy back legs like that? I want to know what these are. This is going to bug me all week. Future Mac here. A little more about these strange ants. The source which we can trace this back to is Herodotus the ancient Greek historian, who himself claimed he got it from an unnamed Persian source. In the late 20th century, people seemed to have figured out what he was talking about, and apparently what happened is he got confused about Persian words and wrote ant when he should have written marmot. I'm going to provide some links to explain why that is, because the explanation is honestly pretty interesting, but I can't really fit it in here. But that might also explain why all of the illustrations we're looking at look wrong. For example, all the ants have four legs. It could be that since all of the people who copy this manuscript are working off of this game of telephone pictionary with other people's illustrations. It could be that someone had previously understood that he meant the marmots and had drawn them as such. And that would be why the ants look more canine, vulpine, or generally mammalian than they do insectoid. But anyway, I'll make sure to link some sources to you on the blog. Or rather, I'll give some sources to Zoe and she will put them on the blog because she handles that side of things much better than I do. Anyway, back to what we were doing. Also, I'm unclear on why the, quote, ants, unquote, have four legs. Yeah, they've got four legs. This just seems like a mix-up. Yeah. It really does. There's got to be a different word. What's the right, Latin word it... for ant? Hang on. Oh, f***. Um, I'm going to look this one up. I used to know this. You knew the word for ant? When did you ever learn the word for ant? 
I like to read about insects sometimes. <laughs> in Latin, That's obviously. Valid. <laughs> well, no, because scientific right, names right, are right. Formica versus... Formica, that's the one, yeah. yeah. There's Formica, there's also Solipuga and Solifuga, which are poisonous ant slash spiders. Yeah, I thought Solifuga was, were like a sun scorpion thing. It's like <gasps> not scorpion scorpions, but false scorpions. Oh. But I could be getting them that confused with something else. I mean, they burrow and that kind of makes sense. I don't know. That's weird. That's a weird creature. Listeners, if you can figure out what this is, please let me know, because I will now be up at night trying to figure this out. Also, in case you at any point thought that the confusion about whether these are ants or not is only for this illustrator, here's Tiberius's version of the ants digging up gold. They also look like foxes or dogs. Yeah. And the landscape is even more Seussian in this one. Even more. It is. I'm very impressed. It does look like, and I think this is, you know, just like particular to this illustrator, but it does kind of look like ant hills. Mm-hmm. That's true. I mean, they are burrowing for gold. That's fascinating. And the camels look much more like camels. Yeah, there is a second picture in Tiberius. He did two pictures, and one of them does have the camels in it. One of the things that bugs me about this camel thing is, okay, you take a mare, a stallion, and a foal. Mm-hmm. You leave the foal on the other side of the river. You put the gold on the mare. You leave the stallion to, like, deal with ants. What's the foal for? Why did you bring it? I mean, to get the mother back across the river. Oh. In this picture, the dog ants are 100% eating this camel, right? Yes. Yes. And mama doesn't want to leave her baby. Okay. That's like That the f- makes sense. That's the first rule is that mama mooses are so much more dangerous than male mooses when they have foals. And I would okay. assume that goes the same for horses and camels. This poor camel looks so distressed. <laughs> he really does. Well, he's being it's eaten by sad. things that may or may not be ants because they have four legs and tails. <gasps> I just feel like this is a bad strategy. Like, I would be the worst. I would just be like, we don't need this gold, guys. Yeah. Not worth it. How important is this gold, really? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we've got the ant dogs. Yes. Between these two rivers is a settlement called Lakothio. That is, set between the Nile and the Brixen. Hey, me again. Depending on which text you read, it could be either the Brixen or the Brixantes. I don't have a good reason for picking Brixen. I think it was just the one I had read most recently. So that's the one I went with. That's the one that's always called out as an invented river, because I don't I don't know I've never heard of it anywhere else. The Brixen. That sounds very English. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's spelled B-R-I-X-O-N. That sounds very, very English. The Nile is the elder of full rivers, and she flows from the land of Egypt. And they named that river, what river? I guess the Nile, Archiboleta, that is, the great water. That makes sense. In this place are born a great many, and here's the thing, Noel says they are born a great many Ulfinda, which means camels. Uh, Tiberius says Ulfinda, which also means camel. But in the Latin version that Tiberius has, because he did a parallel text, it says... Elephantorum. Hmm. Interesting. And Old English has a word for elephant. It's elpent. So who knows what's going on there. But here are some camels from Noel Mm -hmm. and an elephant from Tiberius. At least I assume that's what that's supposed to be. 
That is a terrifying looking elephant, and I want one immediately. It doesn't at all look like our contemporary conception of an elephant, but it does look dope, though. Yeah, you can see it, though. Like, it's got two big tusks, mm-hmm. and he may- he seems to think the trunk is a tongue. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the ears are not big enough. No. No, apparently no one told him about the ears. And he's pink. He's pink. Which, Asian elephants do have pink spots, but... I, it's more likely that this is an African elephant. So what is going on in the background here? There's some real creative liberties. <laughs> the shadows of feet are just part of the like fading and blotching of the manuscript. Right? That's just yeah. a, an illustration on a facing page. But I don't know what the rest going on back there I'm is. I'm thinking about like the squiggle in the sky is what's confusing. It looks like a thorn yeah. or a branch or something. Maybe a river in the background. It looks like... Being inside a womb with veins or something to me, <laughs> which is strange. even more wild. Yeah, I thought it looked like he was standing in front of like a rock that had a root growing through it. Mm-hmm. But it, I think Zoe's probably right in that it's supposed right. to be a river. I think he's cute. I kind of like yeah. him. Like it's, it definitely doesn't look like an elephant, but whatever it is, I kind of want one. I'm stopping it here because not only is that the end of a passage, but this is about where I should split it if I want part one and part two to be roughly similar lengths. So if you want to hear about what else lives by the Brixen and or Brixantes River, tune in next time. Thank you for listening to The Maniculum. Please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcast to help support the project. For more geeky additions or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter, at Maniculum, and on Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. You can check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Because, okay, I need to put my phone on Do Not Disturb. (laughs) talking about very important things.